Open up your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 8. We're going to start there. Isaiah chapter 8. I don't know if you noticed, but we got through 1 Chronicles 1 through 9 this morning. I felt as though there was going to be a celebration of sorts when we did that. I know Kevin's happy. Um, no, I, I, I think it's great. I was talking to somebody else a few, a few weeks ago. I think it's great that we give attention to all Scripture. I think there's a lot of value in going through that. We've been joking about that because, as we've explained to some of our kids, there's names that we don't ordinarily see. Um, but with that, there's a lot of value in going to places you don't normally go to. And I'm appreciative of whoever has made that decision to go through that. I think, it's, I think that's been good. Um, Isaiah chapter 8. Isaiah speaks of, of trials that are going to come to Judah and other nations, and he describes a nation that will push them to the brink of destruction. Read with me, beginning in verse 6. It says, Inasmuch as these people have rejected the gently flowing waters of Shaloah and rejoice in resin and the son of Remaliah, now therefore, behold, the Lord is about to bring, is about to bring on them the strong and abundant waters of the Euphrates, even the king of Assyria and all his glory. And it will rise up over all its bank, all its channels and go over all its banks. Then it will sweep on into Judah and it will overflow and pass through. It will reach even up to the neck and the spread of its wings will fill the breadth of your land. O Emmanuel. Assyria is described here. As an overflowing river. Now, an overflowing river at times throughout the year could actually be pretty beneficial for the land. It could be good. It could uh, provide for the crops. But that's not what's being described here. What you have in Assyria is just utter destruction. That's what, that's what Assyria is going to bring. This flood was going to cover the, the land from end to end. And its height was going to reach even up to the neck. That's powerful imagery. There, waters rising up to the neck. I don't know if you've ever been in a scary situation like that, uh, where you have felt water coming up to your neck, or, or you can at least foresee that happening. We've all seen videos of things along those lines. I've, I've never been in a flood before. I've never experienced that, nor have I ever experienced like true drowning. However, there was one time when my family and I went up to uh, Virginia in, in, in late November on vacation. We went up there, and... Um, it was cold, and so we, uh, we got all bundled up, and I was going to take the kids night swimming at the pool. It had, they had a heated pool, so I figured it would be a good idea. Hannah stayed back, and I took the kids with me. Well, we took the kids, and I, uh, no sooner than I set my keys down that I hear behind me a splash in the water. Now, Charlie is four years old at the time. She cannot swim, doesn't have any floaties on or anything like that, and she jumps in the water. Um, it's a pretty terrifying feeling when that happened. Uh, I still have my, my sweatshirt on, uh, sweatpants, everything's still on, and I run and jump into the water and I get around. Now, it, it really wasn't that severe of a situation, but uh, any of you who are parents in the audience, uh, you, you know, especially moms, you know the worst fears come to your mind when you start thinking about what could have happened, right? Well, that was a scary feeling because water and children are two. It's a scary combination to have those two things. But really for anybody, raging waters flowing towards you and you see them doing nothing but building up. This is the imagery that Isaiah is trying to bring. And that's a scary thought, but especially when those raging waters is actually the most powerful army in the world 
coming towards you. And it's God who is saying he's coming. By approximately 671 BC, Assyria has grown. Assyria is perhaps the most dominant power in the world. Uh, They're a nation that is known for their cruelty towards rival nations and their captors. And as they expanded, so did their reputation. So, as King Ahaz is hearing these things, he knows the fate that might be coming his way. As their reputation, or as they expand, the reputation does as well. And God tells King Ahaz, the king of Judah, that they are going to be up to the neck with Assyria. But that phrase, up to the neck, denotes two different things. One, one, it it, it says that there is a clear and present danger, a life-threatening danger that is coming your way. But secondly, there's a way of escape. There's a way to get out of this, right? All is not lost. Yet, Well, this evening, what I would like to do is look at three consecutive stories in 2 Kings. Go ahead and turn to 2 Kings chapter 16. What you get in 2 Kings 16 through 19 are three consecutive stories of three different kings who were besieged by a rival nation. And oftentimes, if, if a nation was besieged by another, it carried with it the imagery of drowning. Because you're totally surrounded, and it's growing, and the pressure is mounting. And so what you have are three different kings who are up to the neck in trouble. And as we look at... King Ahaz, well, in 2 Kings 16, a story that's also recorded in uh, Isaiah 7 and 2 Chronicles 28. Uh, But before Ahaz is up to the neck with Assyria, he is in trouble with two other nations. He is in trouble with their brothers of the north and and Israel, as well as the king of Aram. In 2 Chronicles 28, it says that the captives were being taken. 120,000 valiant men, their greatest soldiers, were killed, and Isaiah 7 records that the people were shaking like trees in the forest, shake in the wind. They're scared. Of course they're scared. They're terrified of what might happen. However, also in Isaiah chapter 7, God tells Ahaz that Aram and Israel will not succeed. He says that they will not prevail against them, but he says in verse 9, if you believe... You will surely, or excuse me, if you do not believe, you will surely not last. So what God is telling Ahaz is, you know, the the fate of your nation really depends on your belief. Are you willing to trust in God? Are Are you willing to believe in Him? Well, where does Ahaz go for help? Well, it's interesting that the very next words uh, from Ahaz in 2 Kings 16, if you look at verse 7, he says, I am your servant. And your son, come and deliver me. Well, that's great. Here he is humbling himself, seeing that he is, is, is in need of help, and he is going for help. But who, who does he go to help to? To whom does he go? He goes to Assyria for help. He goes to uh, Tiglath-Pileser, and he asks of him of this help. He goes to this pagan nation, seeks refuge in them. And on top of that, he starts giving all the precious things from the temple over to him uh, as payment for their protection. And to make things worse, if you look at 2 Kings 16, beginning of verse 10, uh, Ahaz goes up to Damascus. He sees the altars of their gods, Damascus being where, where, uh, where the king of Aram would be. Uh, he sees the, uh, the altars of their gods, copies their blueprints. He builds his own altar 
and he starts sacrificing to their gods. He begins to sacrifice to the gods of the nation that is currently destroying them. I guess he thought, well, it's working for them. Maybe it'll work for me. Well, how does it work for Ahaz? Well, for a short time, it does work. Uh, it says in verse 9, the king of Assyria went up against Damascus and captured it and carried the people of it away into exile to Kerr and put resin to death. So for the short term, things start to look up for Ahaz. The people that he was up to the neck to with Assyria and the king of Aram, they're gone. But the problem with hiring Assyria for help is that it's like a hen hiring a fox to help with a dispute with another hen. What's going to happen in that situation? Yeah, they're all going to die. They're all going to be taken. They're not content with just the one, and so that's what happens. Second Chronicles 28 and verse 20 says that Assyria afflicted Ahaz instead of strengthening him. So, when Ahaz was up to the neck in trouble, he sought relief from people who did not know God. He sought relief from people who did not care about all the things that God stands for, like compassion, mercy, and faithfulness. And because of it, when he is up to the neck, he ultimately drowns. Well, 2 Kings 17. Look at King Hosea. Hosea is the last king of Israel, so you can pretty much anticipate where this is going. The last king of Israel, and he is up to the neck, and he is besieged by Assyria. Uh, just as God had said, Assyria is expanding and taking God's people with them. So where does Hosea go for help? Well, after being made a servant to Shalmaneser, the king of Assyria, he tries to pull off some underhand, shady deal with none other than Egypt. The king of Israel goes to Egypt to help them. You see the irony in that? I mean, this theme is something to follow really throughout the, uh, throughout the Bible. God's people voluntarily going to Egypt or people rising up out of Egypt. In both cases, it always ends for bad for God's people. But reaching out to Egypt is truly a reflection of just how much God's people had forgotten about the Lord. The command... For parents in Deuteronomy 6, for their children, when they asked, hey, why are we doing these things? They were supposed to tell a story. And you know what story they were supposed to tell? They are supposed to tell the story of how God delivered His people from Egypt. After God gives laws in, in Leviticus and in Deuteronomy, He says, for I am the Lord your God who delivered you out of Egypt. God's goodness and faithfulness was always tied to Him delivering the people out of Egypt. But now, here is the King of Israel seeking help from Egypt. How often do we go to people of the world who do not care at all about God to solve different problems that we have? Of course, this doesn't work for Hosea. After being bound and thrown into prison and after being besieged by this nation and dried out for three years, he's taken into exile. They're scattered among the, the regions of Assyria and of course, like Ahaz, when he is up to the neck, he ultimately drowns. But it's interesting that at the end of 2 Kings 17, the writer gives like a little explanation as to why these things happen. A quick summary of Israel. And notice what he talks about beginning in verse 7. He doesn't mention their lack of military strength. 
He doesn't mention their lack of political leadership or, or, or their lack of, of, of political power. Now, what does he say beginning in verse 7? It says, Now this came about because the sons of Israel had sinned against the Lord, their God. Their God who had brought them up from the land of Egypt, from under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And they feared other gods and walked in the customs of the nations whom the Lord had driven out before the sons of Israel and in the customs of the kings of Israel, which they had introduced. Then skip down to verse 12. They served idols concerning which the Lord had said to them, you shall not do this thing. Yet the Lord warned Israel and Judah through all his prophets and every seer saying, turn from your evil ways and keep my commandments, my statutes, according to all the law which I commanded your fathers and which I sent to you through my servants and prophets. However, they did not listen, but stiffened their neck like their fathers who did not believe in the Lord their God. They rejected his statutes and his covenants, which he made with their fathers and his warnings with which he warned them. And they followed vanity and became vain and went after the nations which surrounded them concerning which the Lord had commanded them not, or not to do like them. They forsook all the commandments of the, of the Lord their God and made for themselves molten images, even two calves, and made an Asherah and worshipped all the hosts of heaven and served Baal. Then they made their sons and their daughters pass through the fire. And practiced divination and enchantments and sold themselves to, uh, to do evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking Him. So the Lord was very angry with Israel and removed them from His sight. None was left except the tribe of Judah. Did you pick up on why this happened to Israel? Why Hosea drowned? Because they had sinned. And by the way, did, did God strike them the first time they sinned? No, God did, made every provision to try and make sure that they didn't fall into that stuff. He, he, he delivered them from Egypt. He took, them, or he took the, the other nations that were in that land, drove them out. And then when they were doing wrong, he sent servants and prophets to go teach them. And yet they still ignored. And it said at the end of verse 17 that they provoked him. And so the Lord delivered them to Assyria. Let's look in 2 Kings 18. In 2 Kings 18, we get the story of King Hezekiah. Again, this is recorded in other places. 2 Chronicles 32, Isaiah 36 and 37. Um, by the way, anytime a story is written multiple times in Scripture, I think it's one that we ought to pay attention to. Though Ahaz did not lead Judah to destruction, they were still up to the neck with Assyria. However, King Hezekiah, no doubt observing what his father had done before, did not walk in the footsteps of his father. In 2 Chronicles 29-31, through 31, it lays out all these different reforms that Hezekiah made. Uh, Hezekiah removed the altars to the false gods. He reinstitutes the Passover. Hezekiah was a good king. All that being said, though, Assyria is still a powerful nation and still a major threat to Judah. And at the end of 2 Kings 18, Assyria attacks and seizes all the fortified cities of, of Judah. Then, in verse 17, Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, sends uh, some men, particularly a rather vocal man by the name of Rabshakeh. He berates Judah with his verbal abuse and threats, trying to intimidate them into submission. He, uh, let's read some of what he says uh, over in 2 Kings 18, beginning in verse 19. Beginning of verse 19 says, Then Rabshakeh said to them, Say to Hezekiah, 
Thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, What is this that you have? You say, or what is this confidence that you have? You say, but they are only empty words. I have counsel and strength for, for the war. Now on whom do you rely that you have rebelled against me? Now behold, you rely on the staff of this crushed reed, even on Egypt, on which if a man leans, it will go into his hand and pierce it. So is Pharaoh, a, a king of Egypt, to all who rely on him. But if you say to me, we trust in the Lord our God, is it not he whose high places and whose altars Hezekiah has taken away and has said to Judah and to Jerusalem, you shall worship before this altar in Jerusalem? Then skipping down to verse 29. Thus says the king, or uh, yeah, verse 29. Thus says the king, do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he will not be able to deliver you from my hand. Nor let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord, saying, The Lord will surely deliver us, and this city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Do not listen to Hezekiah, for thus says the king of Israel, Make your peace with me, and come to me, and eat each of his vine, and each of his fig tree, and drink of the waters of his own cistern, until I come and take you away to a land like your own land, a land of grain and of new wine and a land of bread and vineyards, a land of olive trees and honey that you may live and not die. You see what he's saying? He's trying to coerce them into thinking this is really the right decision. Leave what Hezekiah is telling you to do and follow me. Uh, the end of verse 32, but do not listen to Hezekiah when he misleads you saying the Lord will deliver you or deliver us. Has any one of the gods of the nations delivered his land from the hand of the king of Assyria? Hezekiah has been a pretty difficult spot here. He's in a similar position as Hosea and Ahaz, but what does he do when he is up to the neck? Or to use the words of Rabshakeh in Isaiah 36 and verse 4, where is your trust? Where is Hezekiah's trust? Well, look at chapter 19 and verse 1. When he is up to the neck, it says in verse 1, And when King Hezekiah heard it, he tore his clothes, covered himself with sackcloth, and entered the house of the Lord. When Hezekiah is in trouble, he goes to the house of the Lord. While his father Ahaz uh, sells off pieces of the house of the Lord, Hezekiah goes there because he knows this is where God is. Not only that, he goes to godly people for help. He goes to Isaiah and asks Isaiah to speak to God on his behalf and looking for help. And Hezekiah does what God had told Ahaz to do before. And eventually Hezekiah goes to God himself and he prays before God, which is recorded in all three of these texts. Read with me chapter 19, beginning of verse 15. It says, Hezekiah prayed before the Lord and said, O Lord, the God of Israel, who are enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone of all the kingdoms of earth. You have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. Listen to the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to reproach the living God. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have devastated the nations in their lands and have, cast their, uh, and have cast their gods into the fire. For they were not gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. So they have destroyed them. Now, O Lord, our God, I pray, deliver us from his hand that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone, O Lord, 
our God. How does this approach work for Hezekiah? Well, God delivers Judah. 185,000 Assyrians are killed in their sleep by an angel of the Lord. Rabshakeh is confused and he goes home. And then I love this. It says uh, at the end of chapter 19, Sennacherib goes in the house of his God and he's killed by his own sons. I love that juxtaposition there. The comparison of Hezekiah goes to the house of his God and he is delivered. Sennacherib goes to the house of his God and he is killed by his own sons. You see the comparison there? There is only one God, one true God. And I love what uh, Hezekiah says at the end of his prayer. Deliver us from uh, from his hand that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone are God. We looked at this map before. We looked at this map really just to highlight the dominance of Assyria at this time and how quickly they had expanded. But you know what I find most impressive and most interesting? That one tiny little nation that Assyria did not capture. What I find more impressive is that this tiny nation that really has hardly a military at all uh, has already had 120,000 of their valiant men killed earlier. This nation is able to overpower God. Why? Because they sought the Lord their God to deliver them. And now the rest of the world knows that this God is the one true God. Because Hezekiah turned to God, God says to Assyria in chapter 19, verse 28, he says, because of your raging against me and because of your arrogance has come up to my ears, therefore I will put my hook in your nose and my bridle in your lips. Uh, People believe that's a reference to the way that the Assyrians treated their captives. But now God is saying, I'm going to do it to you and I will turn you back by the way which you came. So when Judah was up to the neck in trouble, God rescued them because, Hezekiah, because of Hezekiah's faith in God. What are we going to do when we are up to the neck in trouble? Turn back to Isaiah chapter 8. I want to end there. Take, take a look back at Isaiah 8. Uh, this is where we found that phrase that I've been using over and over uh, this evening. But this section about Assyria's threat is really in the middle of a larger section about how God will deliver His faithful people. A larger section that devotes its time to speaking to us about a son by the name of Emmanuel. Isaiah 7, verse 14 says, Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. And as Matthew 1, verse 23 tells us, God with us. There's a few more references that are in uh, chapter 8 that we're not going to get into, but in chapter 9, verse 1, it talks about how the gloom and the anguish of God's people are going to be done away with because of this son, because of this child. And then in the following verses, beginning in verse 2, goes into a little bit more of an explanation. Read with me there. Beginning in verse 2, the people... The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. You shall multiply the nation. You shall increase their gladness. 
They will be glad in your presence, as with the gladness of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For you shall break the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders, the, the rod of their oppression as, uh, as at the battle of Midian. For every boot of the booted warrior in the battle tumult, the cloak rolled in blood will be the burning, the fuel for the fire. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us. And the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne, on the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness. From then on and forevermore, the zeal of the, of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. This son was going to be a light to the people. God's faithful people were going to be mighty again through this child. Burdens from oppressors were going to be lifted. This total victory is going to be won. I believe that's the reference to the Battle of Midian in Numbers 31. He will rule over God's people, but unlike the rulers from before. No, this son is going to rule with justice and righteousness. God promised that relief for God's people would come. Relief for this remnant would come through Emmanuel, the promised Messiah. And throughout the New Testament, writers quote from Isaiah, making the connection of Emmanuel to Jesus of Nazareth. Therefore, even we can find relief through this promise that God gave the people of Judah. We too can find relief when we are up to the neck and trials. And as we look at our own lives, as we look at our own lives, it is imperative that we do not walk in the footsteps of Ahaz and Hosea, people who sought worldly solutions to their problems. We cannot copy what the world does in ways that they solve their problems. We cannot rely on the wisdom and strength of ourselves or the wisdom and strength of academics or the wisdom and strength of people who are in some ways successful in this world. We need to do as Hezekiah did. Like Hezekiah, we need to go to the house of the Lord. Even though, and I'm sure many of you have been here, maybe some of you are here right now, you know sometimes this is the last place you want to be when you are in a difficult situation. For some, when you are going through these difficult situations, maybe even brought to depression, maybe this is not where you want to go. But we cannot allow that to cause us to forsake the assembly as it did for the readers of Hebrews. We should find refuge in praying with other people, singing with other people, reading God's Word with other people. And you know what? Even when we don't, even when we don't, we don't find refuge in those things, even when this is the last place we want to be, what we should do is put our trust in God that this is a good place for us to be. And we should be here. Go to the house of the Lord. And like Hezekiah, we need to go to godly people for help. I'm not saying we can't find comfort in teachers or coworkers or maybe even therapists if that's something that's needed. That could be a valuable thing. However, we should carefully consider who we're going to for comfort. We need to find godly people to confide in. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make this point. Specifically, we need, to, we need to look to our elders to confide in. 
and elders' wives to talk to. Elders are men who have been selected based on their godly attributes, and depending on how you interpret 1 Timothy 3, also the godly attributes of their wives. These are people who are watching over your souls, not in some dominating way, but in a loving way, like that of a shepherd taking care of their sheep. And, to use that imagery, a sheep that avoids its shepherd is lost. Now, I think that's ultimately true in application to our chief shepherd in Jesus, but I hope what you see is that there is great value in our elders and what they are here to do. They ought to be looking after us, and we ought to go to them for help and for comfort when we are up to the neck. And like Hezekiah, we must go to God in prayer. If you were, if you were to categorize all the Psalms, take all 150 of them and put them in, in different categories based on genre and things like that, the amount of Psalms of lament far outweigh the Psalms of praise, the Psalms of wisdom and things like that. Why is that? Why do you think the Psalms of lament, or those are the things that people want to go to God about? I think it's because of the amount of trouble that we all go through in life. Whether it's real or not, many of us constantly feel up to the neck in something. The psalmist certainly did. And even though, even though some of the things that the psalmists say are like uncomfortable and like borderline blasphemous, it feels like at times, who are they speaking to when they're saying these things? They're talking to God. Do not underestimate the effectiveness of prayer. Whether these prayers are answered in the way we want them to or not, understand that God is working. Go to God in prayer. And lastly, something that Hezekiah did not have the benefit of knowing like we do, we must remember Emmanuel. We must remember Jesus. And all that he accomplished through his death and through his resurrection. Paul talks a lot about comfort uh, and being comforted in 2 Corinthians. He makes many references to the comfort that uh, other Christians have provided him. But he makes special emphasis on the comfort that we find through Jesus. 2 Corinthians 1 in verse 5. For just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so also our comfort is abundant through Christ. The suffering that we go through, Christ has gone through. And we ought to find comfort in the one who chose to go through it for the purpose of saving us. 2 Corinthians 4, beginning in verse 7. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God, and not from ourselves. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not despairing, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always caring about in the, die, in, the body, in the body, the dying of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our body. Chapter 8 and verse 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor, so that you, through His poverty, might become rich. And then finally, in 2 Corinthians 12, when, when Paul is asking, begging God, to take away this thorn in the side, in reference to Jesus, he says in verse 9, And he has said to me, My grace is sufficient for you. For power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast in my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, 
I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties, anything I might be up to the neck in. For Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Whatever it is that ails us, whatever it is that you are struggling with, whatever it is that has brought you up to the neck, understand that Jesus, the grace of Jesus Christ is sufficient for you. And I don't say that as some preacher standing up here. This is what God wants you to know. That every struggle that we go through, we can relate, or Jesus can relate to, because He has suffered. But He has said that power is perfected in weakness. Go to God. Seek Him. The grace that is in Jesus' death and resurrection is sufficient for us all, no matter what. So seek comfort in Him and the hope that we have through Him. However, if you are not a Christian, that grace, well, you don't really have a part in it. It can be yours. That's certainly the invitation that I would like to, to extend right now. It's not my invitation. It's an invitation that Jesus makes. That everyone who follows Him, commits, commits your life to Him, have been baptized for the forgive, uh, for, uh, forgiveness of sins, that you have life through Jesus. Or anyone who is up to the neck and has failed in certain areas. Do not act as the other kings did and start seeking solutions in, the, in worldly ways. Go to God. Let us pray together so that you can find forgiveness. If you have any need of any of these invitations, please come up now while we stand and sing.